Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Um, to find out about my background, rajbalkaran.com slash academia. More importantly, I have the pleasure of speaking w- today with Dr. William Ellison. He is now Associate Professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, in the Department of Religious Studies. Hello, William. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Um, thanks so much for having me on the program, Raj. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, we are talking about his uh, most fascinating book, The Neighborhood of Gods, The Sacred and the Visible at the Margins of Mumbai. Uh, so The Neighborhood of the Gods, um, tell us a bit of, about how you got into this project. Yeah, um, so this project, uh, it's taken uh, a very long time, um, and I start off my acknowledgments by describing it as an enormously long gestation period. Um, it originated not only in my dissertation, but in some pre-dissertation work I was doing when I was a very tender, callow graduate student. Um, So the nub of it is that uh, I had thought early in my grad student years that I wanted to do something um, with film studies. I, I was a kind of Bollywood addict. Uh, and, you know, in a way, this was a, a rebellion against my training in the history of religions. Um, as you know, I'm a professor of religious studies these days, and, and I ended up writing a book about gods. Um, I didn't, it didn't start out that way. I went to Bombay uh, to escape from my graduate program to find something that uh, I, I could be interested enough to, to uh, dedicate myself to study for years. And I thought that was going to be um, in film. And I wasn't looking for gods. I wasn't looking for religion. I ended up um, getting an invitation to tag along with a film shoot at one of the most famous Bollywood studios, Filmistan Studios, um, which is still up and running, um, but its glory days were in the uh, the late 40s, the 50s, and the early 60s. Um, so I found my way inside this studio, and I learned that um, there's a section of the studio that's called The Village, and it's used by film producers uh, as a village set. They, they dress it up in all kinds of ways. They shoot all kinds of scenes there, but primarily um, they're scenes that are kind of characterize their exterior shots of a small community, um, most, you know, uh, typically a a sort of rural or rustic community. So inside the village set, there were people. And um, I learned that they were actually, you know, they were the villagers who lived within the village set. Um, And here was the story that I became intrigued in. And as I kept on getting deeper into it, I learned that the village set uh, had actually been a village before it was turned into a set that the entire area 
that was now a film studio in suburban Bombay, Mumbai, um, had originally been a village, um, that the village set was the kind of remnant or fragment that was left over after the studio wallas, the, the you know, producers had created a, a compound, had built a compound around a plot of land uh, on which to construct sound stages and exterior sets. And then, you know, uh, as my inquiries progressed, that the villagers belonged to uh, a tribal community, so-called, an Adivasi community. They're members of the Varli community. Uh, and they have Adivasi gods. Um, there's a, a little structure at the entrance to the village set that looks like a little artificial shrine, a uh, little Hindu shrine of the sort that, you know, are ubiquitous actually on, on Indian film sets. Um, I learned that it was not a fake shrine, but a real shrine um, consecrated to the tiger god, Vag or Vagoba, who is um, worshiped by Varlis and other um, tribal groups in, Western coastal India. And um, that's how I went from neighborhood to God. That's how I went from film, thinking about films, to thinking about neighborhoods, to thinking finally about gods. And uh, here we are, you know, long, many long years later, um, the book has finally come out. And I'm not a film studies person. It turns out I was a religious studies person all along. So it was a uh, it was a path of self discovery, <laughs> as, well, as well as academic research. <laughs> it was that. So you you lay out you lay out your encounter with the village in chapter one, if if memory serves. Um, yeah. What what would you? What's the main thrust? What's the main argument of the book? The main argument of the book. Okay. Um, so there, it developed that um, I I pursued two distinct inquiries um, and to, to you know to distill it um, the the argument of the book is that what people are doing in my first inquiry is the same thing that people are doing in my second inquiry the first inquiry has to do with the residents of this little studio, this little uh, village enclave inside a studio, um, and their maintenance of uh, the sacred geography of the village um, in contestation of, in spite of, uh, the makeover of their village as a film studio by um by a different social constituency by the film industry by the people who run the studio by the film producers who come in routinely and you know cover up um the landmarks of the old village geography and dress it up as you know whatever the shooting script calls for um, so i was interested in the maintenance of the stations of the Adivasi gods uh, in continued in the continued uh, importance and meaning of sacred landmarks like um, the wells and groves of special trees. Um, that's sort of inquiry one. Inquiry two uh, has to do with the streets of downtown Bombay or Mumbai. Um, when I did the bulk of my field work. 
in 2003, there was a campaign that was orchestrated um, by people speaking in the name of the public interest. And um, as I have argued in the book, and as many of my colleagues who are more um, oriented towards urban studies, urban geography, um, urban anthropology, uh, as opposed to religious studies, that is, uh, as I argue along with these colleagues of mine, um, generally, uh, when there are civil society movements in urban India who speak for the public, um, their constituencies tend to be overwhelmingly uh, middle class or professional class. Um, so this is a sort of bourgeois movement. Um, and the movement, the, its purpose was to clear the public streets of so-called illegal religious structures. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, for those of you who are listening, who aren't familiar with this term, um, this is the, the official English term that's used in India um, by the government and by uh, English language journalists to describe something that is such a common phenomenon uh, in urban India, and in fact, in urban South Asia, we could say, uh, as to be virtually ubiquitous. Um, it's the little sites of worship that uh, one encounters, that all pedestrians encounter when they're walking down the street or walking along the, uh, the sidewalks. Um, in Mumbai, the major um, religious figure who is enshrined on the streets is a historical, uh, charismatic um, Sai Baba of Shirdi, um, who has managed the rather remarkable feat of being both a, um, he's recognized as an avatar by uh, Hindus and as a peer, as a saintly holy man by Muslims. So he crosses that divide. Um, and indeed, you know, um, according to his, uh, the principles of his creed, um, he encompasses all, uh, uh, all religious paths, not only Hinduism and Islam. Um, okay, so sorry to, to come back around to finally answer your question, Raj, and this was supposed to be the, you know, the thumbnail uh, sketch of the argument, my elevator pitch, I'm afraid we're already on the 120th floor or something. William, are, but, you, are, you, an <laughs> are you an academic by chance? <laughs> Are you a scholar by chance? I'm teasing. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I am a, I am a scholar. <laughs> no, I, as an academic, it's it's almost expected that that there'll be a footnote or two within your 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 verbal response. <laughs> I, my students, when I'm lecturing in classrooms, you know, I I tend to go off on these um, excursions, and and then you know I'll catch myself and I'll say to return to the original sentence. Here's the so, end of. The Here's the end of the sentence. So in both scenarios, you have relatively privileged people who are acting to uh, erase or um, elide visual traces of um, visual traces on the landscape of the presence of um, of gods or other manifestations of divine power. And you have less privileged groups. Um, I, in, in my argument, I identify the builders of illegal uh, religious structures, um, primarily with um, subaltern groups. Um, I, I see those 
little shrines, illegal religious structures as extensions of slum neighborhoods. So, you know, uh, in the Indian urban context, a slum is unauthorized housing um, for large groups of people, over half of the population of Mumbai, in fact, uh, for people who, uh, whose right to occupy their dwelling place is not legally recognized. And by extension, the gods uh, who are worshipped by such communities, likewise, are in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the state, they're squatters, um, their residence is illegal, hence illegal religious structures. So to sum it all up, <laughs> my argument is um, what the builders of illegal religious structures are doing on downtown streets and what the members of Adivasi communities are doing in areas of the suburbs that up to a generation ago were wooded, you know, and uh, it was the jungle, as people kept on telling me. And uh, sort of conventionally, nobody questions um, in an area where there are a whole bunch of trees, you know, it's the wilderness. Well, of course, wilderness type people, Adivasis, tribal people, that's where they live. That's where they, quote, naturally, unquote, live. Of course, they worship rocks and trees. That's what tribal religion looks like. You don't think about tribal religion. <laughs> you don't think about uh, local gods, deities that uh, have, have the power to um, sanctify discrete spaces um, in, in material space. Uh, you don't think about that as an urban phenomenon. But um, there, I finally reached my elevator, elevator pitch. My book is about local deities in urban space. So at the heart of this, the, this book about local deities in urban space, um, well, mm. when I say at the heart, of, there, there are a number of threads. I think part of the reason why this book is so rich is because it's, it, there's a wide array of data. It's, it's rich in data, but it's also very rich mm -hmm. in theory because you're, you're very much reworking and revivifying the very theory you're working on in addition to the yes. data you're trying to understand through the theory. So maybe a, maybe a fruitful approach would be to talk about the ways in which um, your book either bucks or extends or, or validates certain theoretical lenses. And also it's a very, very quick comment. As you talk about your, your own work being more similar to, to folks who do um, urban anthropology or, or, or urban studies, um, it's very similar to so many of, of us in, in religious studies in that, you know, my work may, may arguably have much more similarity with some in literary studies um, than other salvationists. Yep. And so that's, that's quite common. So, so, Maybe we'll talk about the data after you address this, but what is the main, what does your book add or, or sort of correct in terms of our theoretical understandings of studying space in this way? Yeah, thank you. Um, so here I promise to, uh, to keep it short because if I went rambling on a theoretical tangent, I think that would probably drive away whatever podcast listeners uh, we still have with us. Um, so I'll just make sort of two quick assertions. Um, one area where I um, see myself as uh, extending a theoretical inquiry, um, where I'm being constructive with social theory, um, is to um, theorize darshan, what's known as uh, darshan in Hinduism and in related Indic traditions. Um, in other words, a ritually structured visual exchange with 
between a human subject and a divine personality. Um, and so this is an encounter that's mediated. Uh, it's structured through ritual and mediated through a um, through an image, through a visual interface, um, a visual or a plastic interface, you could say. Uh, murti, um, conventionally translated um, as idol or image. And um, I'm emphasizing the visuality over the materiality of the murti uh in in my argument uh i want to i want to think about this encounter in terms of subjectivization uh and specifically building on uh i, I got here by the way via film studies i've been reading um a bunch of film studies uh influenced by lacan um i've been reading lacan went back from lacan to uh, Kozhev, in fact, uh, and um, his model of recognition as structured by uh, what he calls the master-slave encounter. This is actually a, a gloss of Hegel, so we're getting like very kind of hardcore here. Um, that's what spoke to me as a means of understanding what goes on in the Darshan encounter, and specifically in the Darshan encounter, in a, um, in a context, a modern context, a contemporary urban context, a context that is um, characterized by the proliferation of images, um, of visual representations of gods and um, other divine or semi-divine or venerable beings. Um, Yes, again, uh, a modern urban scenario where contact or interaction with such sacred images um, is not monopolized by a community of, uh, by an elite community of priests, uh, in other words, Brahmins, who are sanctioned to um, oversee the ritual exchange. If you take the middleman away and you open up the landscape to a plethora of objects that are, are sort of making a bid for a um, for the darshan gaze for the for the pious gaze. Um, how do we theorize that? How do we know? How do we uh, to, to to bring it to the very kind of matter of fact, earthy language of um, of my fieldwork interlocutors? How do you know which gods are real and which gods are fake? <laughs> right. Um, so. Uh, this, this sort of Lacan meets Kozhev meets uh, Hegel, um, pretty abstruse, uh, psychoanalytically oriented philosophizing. This is what gave me the concepts, the conceptual equipment um, to, uh, to understand what's going on with Darshan in, um, on the streets of present day Mumbai. Um, so that wasn't very short, uh, but I did say I wanted to make two points. The second point it, I will make this short. In colloquial Hindi, um, so I was talking with my interlocutors uh, a lot about real and fake in Hindi, asli and nakli, what's real, what's fake. Uh, we often would pivot from asli and nakli to two other uh, very common colloquial Hindi terms, kacha and pakka. So kacha is kind of raw, underdeveloped, undeveloped, nascent, blurry, 
sketchy. Half-baked. Very nice, yeah. And then fully baked, you know, uh, is pukka, um, proper, ripe, uh, permanent, correct, concrete, clear, legible. Um, so these two, you know, terms sort of, uh, they anchor a continuum um, or a spectrum or something, a range of stages of Coming into becoming into clarity, coming into permanence, um, making a clear, legible claim. Uh, so, if you have a a kacha shrine or a kacha image of God, the claim to the space that that shrine or image marks is not very clear. Uh, it's not legible to um, a public composed of many people who perhaps have diverse ways of recognizing um, the presence or trace of God on the landscape. The more pakka you get, uh, I guess I'm talking here from the perspective of the person who erects the shrine or maintains the shrine, the more pakka you get, the more solid your claim is, um, the more respectable and the more uh, recognizable, there's that word again, your assertion that Yes, this is sacred space. And, you know, in parens, in parentheses, by extension, um, you need, you, the public, need to respect the claims of the community that is attached to this sacred space. And would you say that's evidenced in the space in and of itself, or is it evidenced um, through how... Uh, the the caretakers of the space um, regard it and present it. Right. Um, so that's a wonderful question, and I understand that primarily as a methodological question. Um, what I'll say is, <laughs> you know, it to make the strongest case possible, it needs to be both. Right. Um, I have my own readings or observations um luckily i'm most interested in luckily i'm most interested in your (laughs) your perspective so (laughs) yeah so there's a a lot of i guess my second chapter is sort of organized um under the rubric of walking tours where i'm your guide you know you the reader uh come walking with me along some of my favorite um, pedestrian routes through downtown Bombay uh, and will make stops from one shrine to another. And I give my analysis um, based not on, on an exclusively iconographic reading of, uh, of the shrine's imagery, but iconography is one factor. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to bring things, um, to carry things into uh, an engagement with this theory of recognition. So um, I give my uh, interpretations, my observations of a set of exemplary shrines um, on a continuum starting from kacha, kind of crudest, nas- most nascent, most tentative, to pakka, most officially, you know, firmly planted, here to stay. Now we are a real temple. Um, that kind of thing. Um, And uh, I've also tried to 
supply um, the testimony of people whom I got to know, people whom I interviewed or uh, pursued um, more more committed relationships with, you could say, um, and uh, working with their statements about, on the one hand, um, they're, they're sort of instrumentalist reasons for uh, setting up or running a shrine. Um, you know, some people, I think, uh, can be quite walled about what the uh, what's at stake in the claim to uh, a little corner of space in this enormous, bustling, very crowded city where everybody has anxiety about living space. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, um, talking to my interlocutors about the, the, the metaphysics of the sacred, I guess, that sounded kind of pompous, but you know, how is this actually supposed to work? What, <laughs> how, how does an image or a murti or a structure in which you seat the murti, how is that connected to the presence of a divine personality? who might be named Sai Baba, or who might be named uh, Vital or Vishnu, you know? Um, in what sense is God instantiated in the, at the spot that you have marked as sacred? How does it all work? And their response? Um, well, uh, I got a whole range of responses, certainly. But um, my... My favorite response um, or set of responses, a whole philosophy, in fact, came from a person um, whom I consider a friend. Um, we, we have a kind of bumpy friendship because oftentimes uh, he's very free with his philosophy, um, with his theories about everything. And oftentimes what he tells me is so weird that I feel compelled to argue back at him, which, you know, like might not be the best kind of. Um, method to follow as an ethnographer. But then again, I, I'm sure that uh, I'm not alone as an ethnographer who finds his interlocutors exasperating at points. Okay, anyway, um, among his many theories are a very well thought out, among his many theories is a very well thought out, uh, and at points imaginative, but at other points perfectly orthodox, uh, theory of how gods are instantiated um, at sacred sites, both sites that he sort of takes charge of um, as the, um, he'll describe himself as the, the priest. Um, he calls himself an Adivasi Brahmin, uh, which is a, a tribal Brahmin, which is, um, when he first told me that, that was one of the things I couldn't wrap my head around. But uh, it's his claim to, uh, being as an individual endowed with kind of priestly talents or aptitudes um, within his tribal community. Um, so both shrines that he looks after and also sacred sites uh, that other people control, but that he visits and at which he recognizes sacred power. Um, so he has a lot to say to me about this. I don't want to tie myself all up in knots. Um, but the, the kind of pithiest uh, 
definition he gave to me ran along the lines of electrical equipment, um, where he said, you know, uh, power, shakti, has to be channeled from out there, from, from its source, which is, you know, sort of, by definition, it's distant. And our job as religious subjects, perhaps especially as religious virtuosos, is to bring it safely to channel this volatile substance and uh, safely ground it at a place um, at which we can then access it. Um, so then he, you know, went on to talk about uh, grounding stations, wires, on and off switches, um, short circuits. <laughs> at a certain point, I might have lost the thread because he understands electrical wiring better than I do. That's a fascinating analogy. Um, often it's the case I find uh, that there's the language of of charge or being charged with reference to spiritual yes. power. Um, mm -hmm. So, so would you say your book is about um, gods that are more marginalized than other gods or the sacred itself being marginalized in this uh, arguably secular space? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, gosh. Um, so yes, I am. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, please. It's not a trick question. It just, it just, I just, I thought, uh, I sense there's both going on there, and I wonder how you would present uh, the weight of that distribution. Right. Uh, let's see. I, I don't want to get really abstruse and theoretical about this, and um, I fear if I'm not careful, that's the the direction in which I'm going to, you know, uh, head. Um, okay. I think the way I want to answer your question has to do with uh, the visual interfaces through which different kinds of people um, attain a perception of the divine presence. And um, one thing that is being marginalized uh, in modern Bombay and uh, perhaps across India, um, is cultic activity like the um, cults of sacred trees and rocks, um, sort of swayambhu forms or, or self-manifested forms, um, sites at which gods are understood to have manifested themselves in natural phenomena, unmodified by um, human intervention, sites like that, and you know, we're including some of the most um, some of the most celebrated and indeed to this day popular uh, sites of worship in uh, thoroughly orthodox Brahminical Hinduism. They, they fit within this category. I, I realize that, but I think that as a mode of um, as a mode of looking at space, as a mode of looking at the landscape uh, that recognizes the divine presence on the landscape, this is kind of, it's, um, it's receding, um, especially among um, communities that are relatively marginalized or disempowered. Uh, it's understood to be both 
non-modern, backward, to use the um, colloquial Indian English expression, um, both backward and relatively less efficacious. Um, so I think, you know, what I'm, I'm seeing is quite a broad phenomenon is the enhancement, the what I call the puckification of natural phenomena um, by human intervention. Um, people will seek to make the outlines bolder, um, to apply paint to rocks, for example, to make them stand out. Um, and if you see puckification as kind of a long process, what may start out one year as a sacred stone or um, let's say an anthill, next year it might have um, paint on it and um, a rudimentary structure erected over it. Um, as the cult community grows, as the uh, name and fame of this site spreads, as more people come in, as perhaps more influential, more powerful, um, uh, more upper class or more upwardly mobile people um, join within the cult community, uh, the site itself materially and visually um, becomes enhanced, becomes more pakka. So I, I see a shift away from recognizing the divine in kutcha forms. And then ultimately, um, where the argument ends up at the end of the book is to, to come back around to the film industry and to think about um, Bombay, Mumbai as the home of um, the, it's not the only home of the Indian film industry, but it's, it's the highest profile one. Um, it's also the headquarters of uh, the Indian media industry kind of um, writ large. Um, and um, there I'm thinking about the kind of the most pukka forms, the slickest, most modern looking ways of uh, imagining and imaging deities. Um, and uh, I, I see a trend towards what I call spectacularization, um, both in the way that people imagine and, and inhabit uh, urban space and in the way that people nowadays, self-consciously modern people, encounter sacred space. So I, I hope that wasn't too like much in the in the theoretical like woo-woo kind of. Um, well, it's, it's all it's all about the journey, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, sacred, secular. This idea of sacred versus secular, it comes up a lot when thinking about teaching about okay. broaching uh, South Asia. Um, and I think that yeah. distinction is particularly uh, important for what you're talking about. Is that an imposition from, from the Western world or is there, such a, is there a distinction between sacred and secular in India, in your opinion? Oh, yikes. Um, yeah. Maybe related, yeah, related to the ways in which, um, for example, this mm -hmm. law against, um, what was the term, the illegal, uh, what was the exact term that you used? Religious story. Right. Illegal religious mm -hmm. Do you see that when you're walking down, it's, it's hard for someone to have, yeah. get a sense unless they've been to India and walked down the streets of Mumbai or really anywhere where you see that um, in every cash register on every rickshaw, mm. pretty much every block, mm. there'll be a murti or an icon. Um, there'll be incense. Mm. 
it's just so interspersed with even the public sphere that it seems to be yeah. demarcation between sacred and secular seems to be quite tenuous in the South Asian context. And I think a lot of, of, mm. of, of, of where your data sits, it's in that, that line. It's in that, it's in that blurred boundary. So I thought you may have an interesting perspective on, on that distinction. Well, so I, I have this, this ambition, um, which I will tamp down to uh, engage your question sort of like head on and comprehensively. Um, but instead I'm going to punt. <laughs> and I'll say that, um, you know, as, uh, one South Asia scholar to another, we, um, we both have a, an understanding of the, the kind of layered meanings of that term secularism. Um, and in a specifically Indian context, secularism uh, denotes a kind of, it's an ideological position. Um, and it's for those of you folks who are listening who, uh, who are not familiar with Indian or maybe South Asian um, discourses on uh, the relation of the modern state to religious practice. Um, maybe I should explain that. I think to translate it into U.S. terms, um, the, the closest analog to secularism is multiculturalism. Um, secularism in the Indian context means uh, in public space, we recognize that all religions are valid, um, that they're all, that, that you can be, you can be Muslim and you're as authentically Indian as uh, you would be if you were Hindu. Uh, you can be Christian and you're as authentically Indian as you would be if you were Hindu. Um, it's not, uh, it's not like the, the kind of commitment to the prohibition of um, religious symbols in public contexts of the sort that you see in France, for example, um, with what, what I think in French is called laïcité. Um, rather, uh, what Indian sec secularism insists on is, is a kind of um, even-handed acknowledgement of diversity. Um, and um, for that reason, I think you know, multiculturalism um, is probably a good analogy here. Okay, anyway, um, so having laid out that definition, uh, one point I can make about it is that this, as an ideological position um, in um, recent years, this is a position that has increasingly come under um, some strain, uh, a considerable amount of strain, um, given, the, uh, given the orientation of the, um, the current Indian national government. Um, setting that aside, though, um, I think that one of the implications of my argument in this book is that secularism is, is taken most seriously. There's, there's the most thoroughgoing commitment to secularism um, in such a way that the principle um, has an effect on 
policy, on the organization of urban space. Um, this, is, this is really a, a kind of um, middle class or upper middle class concern. Uh, and that you might certainly find um, a commitment to the principle of religious diversity among the kind of subaltern people with whom I primarily did my research, but that they understand it in a different way. Um, and that while for somebody um, speaking in the name of secularism, like these public, uh, public interest activists um, whose campaign to have the shrines removed from the streets I was following, um, you know, they're talking about things like uh, the rule of law, about the um, separation between public space and private space, and about how um, the, if you claim a section of an urban sidewalk for, uh, let's say, Durga, um, then you are by implication, um, denying that block of sidewalk to people who don't worship Durga. Um, I, um, attitudes towards those positions um, are, are very different among the kind of people who actually do um, build the shrines. Now, you have a chat, I mean, you have, obviously you have um, a number of fascinating chapters and you're welcome to, to pull from any of the data from them you'd like. I'd like us to um, talk a little bit about your chapter on Sai Baba. I think it's chapter three because um, it's, it's such a fascinating figure that has such global proportions in this uh, corner of India and Maharashtra in general, and Mumbai especially. Yeah. And when I was speaking earlier about your book being rich because of the, the data and also because of the theory, I think one of the things that really resonates is that your, you enrich your the, your theory uh, according to the data you, 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 you modify the theory based on what you encounter. For example, with Sai Baba and uh, as a Paka image and the ways in which the ways in which it's a great example of this mutual recognition of, of Darshana, which isn't always the case. Often, often scholars in the field may hold too stringently to a theoretical model and the data may not fit as well. Um, let me talk a little bit about what you sh what you discover with Sai Baba and and how how it helps you theorize um, Darshana. Um, well, first of all, I mean that's a terrific uh, piece of flattery. Thank you very much, Raj. Um, well, well, the check is in the mail, right? You're, you you mail the check. Right? <laughs> Um, the Supadi, as we would say in, uh, in Bombay. Um, so the relation of Sai Baba to the, the kind of ambitious way that I'm trying to re-theorize Darshan, um, you know, the best example, the, the aspect of my chapter, I think that if there's, if there's a part of it that um, comes close to deserving the very kind thing that you said about um, about the primacy of the data or uh, about research um, directing the course of theorizing. Um, 
it's the part that has to that builds on a critical reading of the um, the, the central scriptural text of the um, of the Sai Baba cult. Um, this is a text called the Shvisai Satcharita. Um, it was written in Marathi um, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and it describes a compendium of celebrated and edifying episodes from the life of the holy man um, in, uh, earlier than the 20th century, in the last few decades of the 19th century primarily. Okay. Um, one of the primary concerns, it turns out, of um, Sai Baba's followers was with the kind of technologies of visual reproduction that were just becoming important in Indian culture um, at this juncture in history. That is to say, uh, industrial technologies of um, reproduction through printing, like lithography, chromolithography, excuse me, um, and photography. Um, and Sai Baba was uh, one of the earliest, um, well, yes, he was one of the earliest figures to become prominent, to become widely known through the circulation of his sacred image. Um, as captured first through photography and then reproduced uh, through lithography and circulated um, in, um, in easily um, accessible forms, yeah. Um, it was a theological question for his followers um, as to whether these images, these copies, um, these two-dimensional copies of the real living flesh and blood, materially instantiated holy man, um, in what sense could these copies be said to, uh, to hold sacred power, to hold um, religious power? Would interacting with the copies in some way turn out to be efficacious? Would that be an efficacious way of channeling the energy, the shakti, uh, as my uh, Warley friend would say, of um, Sai Baba, who's the, the source, the earthly source of this divine power. And the answer, as given by the man himself, and as elaborated and, uh, what's the word, um, conceptualized um, by his followers, by his interpreters, is emphatically yes, yes, worship the photograph. Yes, the photograph, in, in, he's quite unequivocal actually, and this is remarkable for a person whose many uh, venerated utterances generally tend to be kind of gnomic or, you know, like he tended to, to speak in riddles. But at one point after another, he's quoted as having unequivocally said, the photograph is me, I am in the photograph. You will receive the full benefit of my presence if you, uh, if you try and see me in the photograph, if you open yourself up to seeing me and being seen by me through the photograph. In short, it's an explicit endorsement 
of darshan via photographic means. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I, this is by no means a coincidence, but it seemed like quite a revelation when I did discover this um, by reading the Sri Sai Satcharita that, yeah, the most uh, explicit theological endorsement of uh, worshiping God through a so-called visual copy of God um, comes from the figure who in Bombay anyway is uh, recognized as the most um, the most prominent um, instantiation or uh, visual manifestation of divine power. He's the guy who supplies the uh, the explanation. So then, so um, well, it's obviously fascinating. It's a fascinating revelation of of. Of, of the understood mechanics of the yeah. transmission of Shakti or the, 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 the divinization of, of, of the embodiment of the Murti. How does this impact um, your study or what you're arguing? Like, this, is, this is crucial. This is a fascinating insight. insight. And what do you, how does it color or impact what you're saying in your book? Hmm. Um, well, for one thing, it's... Um, it's a way to engage with the question of copies, um, which, hmm, right. Um, I mean, you don't need to be uh, in a, working in a context um, where the field of sight is just saturated with the artifacts of, um, the artifacts of the technological reproduction of images as, uh, as present day Bombay is, um, I guess in a sense, I might be kind of going above my pay grade here, but in a sense, you know, the problem of copies is, uh, is the problem of representation itself. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, to, um, to have Sai Baba, uh, on record as, uh, as saying this, to have a, a, a theological argument again, um, from, and it's not just from within Hinduism because um, Sai Baba's ambit is broader, right? He's, he's speaking, I would say, um, yeah, I just made a connection here. He's speaking, uh, according to him on behalf of all religions. Um, I would amend that to say, um, he's, he's articulating a position that he expects to be um, meaningful, to be understood potentially as correct um, by uh, people who belong to all religions. But again, here's my uh, amendment. Um, Indian people, South Asian people uh, who might belong to all religions. Um, and um, so here's the connection I just made. I think that this is a position that seems, yes, that is logical. Yes, this makes sense. Yes, this is the way that I approach uh, sacred images. Um, It's more compatible with what I was talking about as the kind of uh, subaltern alternative to the modern ideology of secularism. now, uh, just sort of one footnote here, since I'm all about the, the footnotes and the, you know, explaining my own explanations. 
Um, that's not to say that any, let's say, piece of paper that is printed with a graphic representation of some god or saint or divine figure belonging to some religious tradition um, is therefore by definition sacred. That's not what he's saying. That's not what my uh, interlocutors are saying. Rather, it's, it's opening up the potential for that, right? And it's um, opening up the question of whose recognition of divine power or presence within a given image or object, whose recognition is authoritative? Whom do we trust? And how is that, how is that claim uh, asserted, recognized? How is the claim of recognition itself recognized? How is that built on and fostered and ultimately made pakka? Um, it, it kind of opens up the field. Yeah, that's sort of a fascinating line of thought. As you were talking about the, how do you call it, uh, puckification? <laughs> well, you know, you, the, the term uh, shaktification has, 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 has been uttered. Uh, I've, heard, I've, I've used that term because nothing really, there's no what? English equivalent. Shaktification, when something is shaktified or someone's shaktified. But putnoting you. Oh, well, you know, if you give me uh, if you give me license to use puckification, you can use shaktification wherever you like. It's a deal. I love it. Um, so when you're talking about this process of uh, puckification of, of 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 the perhaps ones by Ambu, yeah, perhaps an iconic mm-hmm. uh, murtis or, or or sources of of divine power that then uh, become puckified through 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 community, through ritual, through perhaps rabbinical patronage. Um, mm-hmm. You know what really comes to mind? Um, uh, it, it may be an interesting point of data at some point to think yeah. about is in Maharashtra, there are these four, uh, four of the 52 Shakti Pitas in India. Mm-hmm. I believe there are four of them in Maharashtra. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, I've been to all four of them because I was in uh, Pune doing Sanskrit some time mm-hmm. ago. And it struck me that some of the Murtis, a couple of the Murtis are extraordinarily um, and iconographic, as you may find. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them are very ornate, like, like um, Mahalakshmi at Kolapur, for example. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, one wonders if they've undergone this process you're speaking about, that they may have one been, once been these sources of local power that were inornate and recognized by a handful of people in the middle of the wilderness as it were before, Mm -hmm. before, you know, villages really were built around them and, and they are perhaps the result of this process. It's just a thought experiment. Mm -hmm. Um, It, I I think I I would love to uh, extend that thought experiment. Um, And I believe, you know, let's um, give, let let me take a step at, at, giving credit where it's due, I, I think that um, there are many people who have, um, who've, who've studied uh, sites like this, um, maybe even specifically in a Maharashtrian context, um, uh, Didi Kosambi comes to mind. Um, but um, the example that I would give um, to, to give kind of more pukka shape, in fact, to, uh, to your thought experiment, um, is the figure of 
Dattatreya, um, who is a Brahminical god. Um, he, um, for, for listeners who don't recognize that name, um, he's typically portrayed, uh, his icon, um, no, his iconography, better yet, typically incorporates uh, the so-called Hindu trinity of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, um, three heads on one body, the body of a kind of uh, youthful male figure, um, a young cowherd, in fact. Um, and he is the, he is named as the, um, the presiding deity um, at many celebrated um, temples, sites of worship in with uh, Brahminical sites of worship. So temples um, that are staffed by Brahmin priests in Maharashtra, also in um, and adjoining areas of uh, Karnataka and Gujarat. So his, his um, purview is, is very much um, sort of um, northerly, no, not even, anyway, it's Western India. Okay. <laughs> uh, historians uh, or people, you know, engaged in research in a kind of historical, historiographical mode at these sites um, have demonstrated that Datta is a relatively recent um, accretion um, in most cases. Um, in some cases, in fact, the site only became known as a, uh, a site that's sacred to Datta, Dattatreya, in the 19th century. Um, I don't think anywhere in Maharashtra do, is there evidence of a Dattatreya site being a Dattatreya site before, let's say, uh, I'm on shaky ground here, but I think the 16th century. Um, and previously, they were goddess sites. Uh, so this is a, a you know very concrete set of examples of pakkatakation of um, kind of um, it, it's one of the things that I read the let's say acquisition of these sites by Dattatreya as signifying is the Brahminization of um, of local cultic sites. So uh, the goddess who's typically you know a village goddess or um, a very local deity, a territorial deity, is transformed into a Brahminical and translocal deity. Well, that's um, that obviously resonates. The my my primary research uh, initially for the first book was on the Devi Mahatmya, which is right. the first, the first Brahminical iteration of this probably tribal deity Durga. Oh, wonderful! Um, so um, maybe two questions before we wrap up. The yeah. first question is. Um, you know, tell the project is I'm I'm, uh, I'm sure. still don't you can't ask that question yeah which question sorry uh, what is your next project <laughs> <laughs> that's usually what I <laughs> <end>. <laughs> um what um what I mean there's there's so much in the book that we haven't even touched on but um. Are there any of the case studies or main themes that you wanted to talk about or you, you expected to share about or anything that really surprised you or impacted you from any of your interlocutors? Oh, my gosh. I know. Um, there's so much, right? But I just want to make sure that we don't leave anything crucial um, on the table that you want to talk about. 
you know, I don't think so. Um, I, I'm really grateful to you for uh, having read the book so carefully and um, given me such uh, well-shaped questions so that in responding to you, I feel like I've been able to give a very good account of um, the points in my argument that I think are uh, important or potentially interesting to others and um, aspects of my research that I want to call attention to. Um, Great. Great. Uh, I, yeah. So then, so then the dreaded what now? Yeah, what next? thanks. So what now, what next? <laughs> Wait, you told me, I, or I, what now, what next? Okay, I'll tell you uh, one thing that, you know, perhaps I'll succeed in, in saying this in some kind of um, well-phrased way, uh, or, you know, what follows may have to be edited carefully. Um, but I think what next is, I want to push some claims that I've made in my argument further. And um, I want to do um, some sustained and close grain field work. Um, returning to Mumbai, working in um, so-called slum communities and slum colonies, bustis, uh, and following up on some theoretical propositions that I made that I think are just kind of, they're just opening the door on um, what could be a really promising set of inquiries. Uh, one is, is a proposition that I can state, I think, quite simply, which is slum colonies in Mumbai and other major Indian cities tends to be founded, built, and settled by labor migrants who come from villages. Um, they come together from villages. So village deities are coming to the city. Um, some of you know, the most urban deities in India in 2019, a generation ago, were strictly uh, rural deities and their territory was um, someplace altogether different. So I want to follow up on that proposition. Slum deities are village deities in the city. Um, and maybe in my mind's eye, what I see is a kind of um, two-branched ethnography where I want to um, pursue fieldwork in at least one uh, slum neighborhood in Mumbai, and then sort of toggle back and forth between the urban neighborhood and the village of origin. Um, and, you know, see how um, religious practices uh, dedicated to perhaps the same divine personalities are developing, um, how the, the how religious practices in the two places are kind of talking to each other and building on each other. Um, that so that, really, it certainly sounds like a fascinating uh, project, a proposition that um, the, the connection between um, slum deities and, uh, and once village deities. 
Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Okay, great. So this has been an, an interesting chat. We've been speaking today with Dr. William Ellison, who is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. We've been speaking with him about his new book, The Neighborhood of Gods, Sacred and the Visible at the Margins of Mumbai. Thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Thank you very much, Raj. And for all of you out there listening, until next time, keep reading. Take care.